chance to vote. Why should they vote? Why should they have the chance? Who has earned or not earned that right? Is it something you're born with or something you get? Is it something that can be taken away? Who are the people that get to participate in the small d democratic experience? Who are the people who are shut out of that participation? What earns you that or what loses you that? In states across the country, that question is being asked without being asked explicitly. That set of questions, that dialogue is a dialogue that we're having as a country, even though we're not having it explicitly. It comes up when we decide of a returning citizen, someone who served their time, somebody who was convicted of something, who went off, served some time and come back, whether they are then allowed to participate in democracy, if they're allowed to vote. It also raises the question of what happens when you are incarcerated. What are your rights? What are your abilities to participate then? How do we engage in that practically, politically, and philosophically and morally? With us right now is Desmond Mead. Desmond will have a chance to introduce himself and will introduce his organization better than I would have a chance to do. So why don't we just introduce Desmond right now? Desmond, thanks for joining us. Jeff, so thank you so much for having me on. And I'm already loving the questions. <laughs> well, we appreciate having you here. So returning citizens, how did you get into this work? How did you decide you wanted to spend some portion of your time or a lot of your time on the question of who gets to vote, who doesn't get to vote? When do you lose that? When do you get it? When do you get it back? Well, you know, when, when I think of this question holistically, um, and, and I got to tell you, Jefferson, that uh, a few years ago, I, I came to the realization that I've actually dedicated my life to this. And when I mean life, I mean actually life. This is the one thing other than my family that I am willing to die for, to make sure that every citizen of this country have the ability to vote, that have the opportunity to participate in our democracy. You know, I've often said that a chain is only as strong as its weakest link, right? That no matter how much weight you want a chain to bear, it would only be able to hold as much weight as the weakest link can stand. And that is true with our society, with this country. We can only be as great as the segments of our population that has been the most weakened by systems of oppression or discrimination, or even this narrative that says that some lives are less valuable than others. And so talking about strengthening our democracy uh, or being able to vote and participate uh, in elections, the one group of people that has been most weakened uh, in this country have been people who've been impacted by the criminal justice system. And so while my efforts uh, 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 is to restore voting rights to people with felony convictions, the reality is it's a much greater effort is to actually invigorate our democracy. And that could only be accomplished by allowing people like me to be able to vote. And when I, when I say people like me, Jefferson, I'm talking about, I am a returning citizen. I'm a person uh, that has uh, been in and out of prison and jail that uh, suffered from substance abuse, uh, particularly drug addiction, uh, that have at one point even contemplated suicide, right? I was uh, at one point, I could have been considered uh, a pariah on our society, right? But guess what? I'm still an American citizen. Uh, I'm still someone's son, someone's father, someone's brother. Right. I'm still a human being. I'm still a part of this country. And in spite of my past, in spite of what I've done, that there I should have that opportunity to have a say in how this country is run. Let me just jump to this. What is lost 
all right, for for those who have the privilege of never having been incarcerated, thinking it can be hard for anybody to think about the circumstances of anybody else who's in a very different set of circumstances than they are in. It can be hard to relate. The thing I say anytime a political scandal comes up, it's always something that almost nobody can relate to. But many people have something in their own lives that if everybody else knew about, they'd have, they'd have a hard time relating to that, right? It's like if we're all judged, not just by our worst thing, but by our thing that's weirdest, right? Then that's going to be the thing that is by definition the least able to be related to. So for someone who hasn't been incarcerated, they might, they're not thinking about that all the time. What is lost by returning citizens, by people who've been incarcerated, been released, who served their time? What is lost by them not participating in democracy? And I don't. And right now, I'm not talking about political wins and losses. What candidates win? What candidates don't win? We can talk about that. But what else is lost? Man, we. I mean, I think democracy as a whole suffers. You know, I've often said that the more inclusive our democracy is, the more vibrant it becomes, and the more vibrant it becomes, it's better for everyone. Our democracy needs full participation by all of its citizens. And when a returning citizen is excluded from participating, we all lose, you know, and and, and it's not just about, you know, these uh, national elections, right? When a returning citizen uh, is excluded from participating in deciding how their children are being educated, i.e. being able to vote on who sits on the school board, when we cannot uh, uh, participate in deciding who our judges are, right? Who are our sheriffs, right? Who's our mayor, right? I think everybody really suffers from that because one thing that you you do know is that the more people involved in the decision-making process, right? The more fully vetted that, that, that process would be. And the, the chances are, and, and I think this is huge, that elected officials become more accountable Right, they become more accountable. The problem, one of the major problems I think happens uh, in, in our society is that we, since the formation of this country, there's always been a select group of politicians who wanted to pick and choose who got the vote for them, right? They wanted to dictate who gets the vote. And I mean, when you stop and think about it, it hasn't been that long ago uh, since women just was able to get the right to vote. Think about it, there was a time when politicians thought that women should not have a say in how this country is governed, right? And, and they were so adamant about it that they were willing to brutalize women on the streets and throw them in prisons, right? All because a woman said that, listen, I should have a say on how my community is ran. And so when my, my grandfather, about, put it in perspective, I can't speak for uh, you, but my grandfather was alive when women were not allowed to vote. It wasn't that long, to, to illustrate your point that it wasn't that long ago, right? My grandfather not, was alive when women were not allowed to vote. Yeah, and, and so you, 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 we, we have to, like, when I look at, you know, these issues, right, especially around fel- even feminist enfranchisement, I, I understand it's not isolated, right? And, and, and it's, a sim- it's a symptom of a much larger problem, right? And that is when people are, are, are politicians or people in, in, in positions of power try to minimize the influence of the masses, right? And so it's vitally important, right, that that everybody actually participate in our election because that takes away the power from the politicians, which they shouldn't have to begin with. Jefferson, let me tell you what, and I always ask people this question, what successful business do you know 
where the boss has to beg an employee to do something. And when the employee don't do it, that employee still gets a raise or a promotion. Right. There's no successful business that can operate like that. But for some reason, that's how we operate in our politics in this country, that the uh, uh, public officials, right, the elected people who are supposed to be public servants turn into demigods. Right. And, and we seem to be like the servants when that is totally backwards. We should call the shots. That's the basis of our democracy, that we as an individual have all the, all the power, but we decide to acquiesce some of that power in order for us, for you and I, to live together collectively and to afford protection to each other and to thrive. And in order to help govern that, we elect people to serve our needs. And that is not the mentality that we're seeing today. We're seeing politicians who want to be dictators, who want to be oligarchs, and they want to say, well, you know what? I don't want those type of people voting for me. I don't want those type of people participating in elections. I don't want people who made mistakes to be able to vote again, right? And the only reason that they're doing that is to hold on to their power. We need everybody participating because their power shifts from politicians right back to the people where it rightfully belongs. So I heard three or four things. I mean, it is all one thing, but I heard three or four things that I might break it out. And then you feel free to push back on how, what I heard or, or amplify it. But then I want to get to a question that's related, but a little different. So I heard one, it's just fundamental. If you're here, if you're part of this thing and you're not incarcerated, the fact that you have made a mistake in your life and paid the price for that mistake should not mean that you don't get to participate. Oh, I, so let me stop. Let me stop on that one. Please, I please, please. Put, I don't put the caveat on if you're not incarcerated. Let me tell you something, Jeff. Oh, because, because now have, you guys I are have, working for beyond. It's not just formally incarcerated. You, you, you're, we're not just returning citizens. You want people in as well. Keep going. Well, see, here's the deal, right? There's no more telling uh, uh, indicator of citizenship than being able to vote, right? Nothing speaks more to citizenship than that, right? And, and so when you strip somebody of the right to vote, you're basically stripping them of their citizenship to a certain degree. Now, here's the deal. I have four boys, right? And anyone who has boys and know that when you have boys, at some point or another, they're going to do some boneheaded stuff. They're going to do some crazy stuff that's just going to piss you off or make you scratch your head or pull your hair out your head, right? That's why I'm bald now. I have four of them. Right. But let me Why tell you. got to blame it on them. <laughs> I got to blame it. <laughs> I think it's their fault, but, man. But here's the deal, Jeff. No matter what my son does, either one of them, they never stop being my son. Right. No matter what they do. And so I really do believe that no matter what somebody, a, a citizen of this country does, they should not stop being a citizen of this country, which means All right. All right. that, well, like in Maine or Vermont, that. They should never lose the right to vote. Other countries, Spain just had, a, 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 I think it was France, that just had an election, right? And for the president, guess what? Prisoners in jail were able to vote on who was going to lead their country. And in several countries, it's like that. It's the United States, the way you see that people are excluding or, 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 or reducing people's citizenship level because they made a mistake because they have a conviction. So I don't want, you know, the one thing is, that, is the caveat should not be, oh, if you're out of jail, you can vote. In, in Puerto Rico, in Puerto Rico, prisoners in Puerto Rico were able to participate in the presidential preference primaries. 
They're able to do so. Maine and Vermont, people could vote while incarcerated. So if you're so still a citizen, should not. so the way you put it, as, as, long, as long as you're still a citizen, you go, okay. Yeah. And, 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 and I do appreciate that. I don't want to, I was tempted to go down that path for a while. And I might even return to it, but I think theoretically, right, for, for people, for, for instance, who oppose the death penalty, right, that some, there's one school of thought that, well, that that should not be the right of the state. The, the power of the state should not include ending somebody's life. It could include not letting somebody be a part of the state anymore. Uh, it could include restricting someone's freedom so they don't hurt someone. But it shouldn't include ending their life. And for those, for that school of thought, exile, which is a word that isn't talked about much, and in part because almost now, you know, the, the world has been colonized, right? Not every, not every little part, but there's been so much. Humanity has now occupied so much of the living earth that, you know, if, if you're not if you're not in somewhere, you're probably going to be in somewhere else. But nonetheless, exile is not as, as, as uh, outside the TV show or I guess the movie Judge Dread. It's not a, it's not a major, it's not a major yes. like piece of punishment. But theoretically, mm -hmm. okay. If, but if you're not a citizen, at some point, one can say you don't belong here anymore. You're not a citizen. But I don't but want to go. That to, is go ahead. Go ahead. That is the basis of fellow disenfranchisement. So when we first seen its emergence, it was during the uh, Roman era. And it was a form of civil death, right? And the prerequisite to that was that someone did something that shocked the moral consciousness of the society. They did something so despicable, right? That it just totally blew our minds away. We're like, you know what? You no longer deserve to be a part of our society. And so we're excommunicating you. We are our are, 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 we're, we're, we're casting you off and anything that you own now belongs to us. You, we were throwing you out with nothing. And then in, during the medieval times in, in, in Europe, what you've seen was that was used as a way to acquire people's land. And so if, if I was cool with the king, I would bring charges up against someone else whose who's beachfront property I wanted. Right. And I would say, let's give them a felony conviction so we can uh, 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 give them civil death. And then now we have their property and that person no longer is a part of that society. Right. And so that was the basis of felon disenfranchisement. So do you think there is any role? Is there any sort of crime or series of crimes or any human being that shocks the conscience, uh, that shocks the moral conscience of society enough? that they should lose their citizenship. They should lose their, <laughs> even if we set aside property, it should lose their ability to participate. That's a great question. And I'm going to tell you what the original intent of the framers of the constitution was, right? When you look at the 14th amendment and they talk about suffrage, right? They, they made an exception, right? And it was, it was, you know, they've been researched down on this, but at the end of the day, what the what they originally what the framers originally intended was that the only way that somebody would lose the right to participate in an election if they were convicted of treason, right, and rebellion, right, if they were convicted of doing something against the the country, then it's like okay, if you're trying to if you're trying to destroy this country, then you shouldn't have a say in how this country is run. Right. Yeah, if you if you rob somebody, that's one thing. But if let's say some just mythical hypothetical that you actually tried to storm a Capitol building and save and, and take power was what, over U.S. government, that's the one thing that might make you get exiled, lose your ability to participate. Yeah, and that's what the frame of it. If you look, if you look at the wording of it, 
especially if you look at the history of the development of, of, of Section 2 of the uh, 14th Amendment, what you see is that states could, could uh, uh, withhold the vote from uh, otherwise eligible voters with two exceptions, by treason and other crimes. And that other crimes were originally rebellion, right? Treason and rebellion. If you conspired with another country to hurt this country, you should not be able to vote, right? And if you participate in the act to try to destroy this country, you should not be able to vote, right? And through compromise, uh, the, what you see in the language was you had treason, but then you had other crimes. And what the states did was that they used that, uh, 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 um, they used that, that some of that vagueness there or, 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 uh, or the breadth of, of the language to allow them to say, you know what, let's use this for the newly freed slaves. And let's say if you're convicted of a misdemeanor or a felony or whatever, that you can't vote again, right? And, and you've seen that it was intentional because during the reconstruction era, you, you've seen laws that were put in place that would uh, uh, that would tend to be uh, 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 that would tend to be like offenses that the newly freed slaves were more likely to commit. So in some states, you would lose the right to vote for hitting your wife, but you wouldn't lose your right to vote for killing your wife, right? You would lose your right to vote for stealing the chicken, but not for killing someone, right? And so you've seen how they took advantage of some of the vagueness of that language with other crimes to include as much as they wanted to include, eventually the courts got involved and said, you know what? No, other crimes have to be something more serious. So if it's a felony, yes, you can disenfranchise, but you can't disenfranchise people for misdemeanors. But that comes because of that other crimes portion of the, uh, um, the uh, 14th Amendment. The reality was that other crimes were really geared towards rebellion, crimes of rebellion, right? And, those things, and it makes sense. It makes sense that if you're trying to destroy this family, then you shouldn't have a say in this family. Or if you're trying to conspire with someone else to destroy this family, then you should not have a vote in what's going on or, or the governance of this family. Because you've demonstrated, right, that you are against this family. Yeah, looking at this for a little bit, and I'm not a historian on the topic, one of the reasons I appreciate this conversation is that uh, in the early in the early days of the country, not very many states uh, had felon disenfranchisement laws. Uh, by the by, the Civil War, it was the majority of then states had uh, had uh, felon disenfranchisement laws, and there and there certainly are those among which you are who uh, one who say that that was linked to right that was linked to trying to make sure that uh, freed black slaves did not participate. Uh, and, and what are the best sources? That's sort of a clumsy question. But what are the best sources of this, right? Because most people, when they're passing a law, right? It, like John C. Calhoun would, would occasionally slip up. And when he was actually talk, would talk about property rights, he would make clear when he was talking about property rights, he was actually talking about human property, right? He would, he would let his racism show in text. But very mm -hmm. often when you're passing law, you don't. Right. A person doesn't say, hey, the reason is we want to make sure that we've brought all, you know, we have all these people at some point. Are they going to be part of running the country? What can we do to make sure they're not part of running the country? And you don't, it's not everybody wants to say the inside voice out loud. What are the best sources but for they understanding have, this? They, no, they have said that. And, yeah. and they, uh, I mean, it's on the record, legislative records. I believe 
uh, one state in particular in Virginia, you know, uh, where legislators were saying like, hey, this is a mechanism that we can use to keep, you know, the newly freed slaves from participating in elections. And, and you have to understand the reasoning behind that. Because uh, it, 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 it's, I mean, we, we see it today. A lot of uh, uh, these laws that we're seeing being enacted all over the place is, is I, I think, as a result of fear. I think it's vice versa as well. You know, I think fear drives some of these laws, and some of these laws stoke fear in folks. When we talk about federal disenfranchisement law, we have to step back, take a step back before when 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 the slaves were free. Uh, one of the very first things that you know, first of all, it was a shock because you're talking about uh, uh, decades of of slavery. This country, I mean, I think we have more years in slavery than we have without slavery uh, in this country, right? And and so when you talk about uh, uh, um, people being accustomed to looking at uh, uh, African people as if they were less than human. Matter of fact, we were three-fifths of a human, right? And, and, and how we were treated like less than or worse than you would treat animals. To all of a sudden wake up and, and, and be told by the federal government, right? A state being told by the federal government that these people who we always look down upon have just as much right as we do, right? That is shocking in itself. But then to see these very same people that we brutalized for decades, where I brutalized, my father brutalized, my grandfather brutalized, my great-grandfather brutalized these people, that these people all of a sudden participate in our democracy and start getting elected in the office. You know, there's the old saying, it ain't fun when the rabbits got the gun, right? And, and so there's this fear, right, that, oh my God, now these people are gonna seek retribution, we have to find something to diminish this political capital, this newfound political capital that these people have gotten. And that's where you see these Jim Crow laws popping up all over the place. Same thing that's going on now where some people are stroking fear in others and, and, and causing the, uh, 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 um, the formation of these, these laws that's supposed to protect something or to reduce fear in, in individuals right, but these are just discriminatory laws and, and, or statutes and serves no purpose other than to further suppress uh, uh, some segments of our population, right? And, and so we, we try to push back against that because, and I think Martin Luther King was very brilliant with it because what he, part of what he was trying to do was to let the other side know, listen, you don't have to be fearful of it. Don't think, oh, because, you know, we talking about, oh, uh, in maybe a few more years, the majority of the population is not going to be white or whatever. You know what I'm saying? Um, and the reality is that what Martin Luther King is saying, even if there is a majority, you don't have to worry about retribution. We don't want retribution, right? What we want is the opportunity to peacefully coexist. And we know that if we're able to peacefully coexist, that we can make this a greater country than what it is already. Right, so you don't have to be scared of me because I'm black. You don't have to be scared of me because I'm an immigrant. You know, you don't have to be scared of me because maybe I don't make as much money as you or whatever. You don't have to be scared of me because I may think differently religiously or politically than you, right? Because at the heart of my existence, at the heart of my actions day to day is that I still recognize you as a human being. I still recognize you, Jefferson, as my brother and knowing that that's what I react to first than the color of your skin or even your political preferences. 
Well, let's go back to the personal. Let's go back to the to the human being. Not only the sort of the philosophical or societal benefits and costs of returning citizens having the ability to participate in democracy, right? And so I, I'll go back to the question I asked, like what's what is lost, right? And I heard you say a few things. I heard you say, well, it's just it's just a basic first principle. It's a priori, it's fundamental. It is what it means to be a citizen of the country. Second, I heard you say that politicians shouldn't choose their voters. Voters should choose their politicians. Those are related. Third thing I heard you say was something like, democracy works better if everybody gets to participate. We get better answers. We will better understand the will of the people if the people have a chance to express their will. Something I didn't hear you say, which I find interesting, and I don't think it's because you disagree with it. I think it's interesting you don't lead with this. And I, I may even think it's strategic, or maybe you just find it too obvious. And it's not the thing I wanted to get to next, but I guess we're about to, is that our justice system is imperfect. Our justice system does not apply its strength in equal measure to everybody in the American experience in equal measure. And therefore, for instance, you mentioned the black community, right? The black community has borne vastly bigger burdens uh, from the criminal justice system than any, you know, than, than certainly any white community. Uh, so I would add that you can pile on to what I just said or, or, or add to it. And that, but then I want to get to another, I want to get to another one that I want to dig into as a question. But did I capture that right? Is that a pretty decent summary of what I heard you say? <laughs> well, I think the last, well, yes, you did. But the last part was something that you said you didn't hear me say, right? Yeah. Uh, as, as, as it relates to the justice system. You know, I, I, especially when I talk about democracy, you know, I think those things that I mentioned are like the top things. I think, but when I look at the criminal justice system, I think that's just another symptom of something of, of a greater problem, right? Uh, um, you know, even with the justice system being the way it is, if we're not, this, I mean, it's the same justice system that Maine and Vermont has, same justice system that, that Puerto Rico has, you know, and, but guess what? People are still voting and being participate uh, and participating in democracy, right? But when we look at the justice system, what we see is something of a, the, a very close cousin of these politicians uh, trying to pick and choose their voters. The justice system is another mechanism of controlling the population. We've seen, you know, we want to criminalize what we want to criminalize and we want to punish how we want to punish, you know? You don't see, uh, white collar crimes being uh, 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 punished like blue collar crimes, right? Um, and, and just think about it. If I go and I take a gun and I go rob somebody of 50 cents, we've seen in California three strikes throughout uh, laws where a guy stole a golf club and he's given life in prison, right? But then you can get people who defraud a citizen out of millions or hundreds of millions of dollars. They steal hundreds of millions of dollars. They get a golf club as a present. Yeah, and they get a golf club as a present, right? And so we know that the justice system is not really about justice. It's just about another mechanism of just controlling certain segments of the population, right? And so that is another issue that we get it. I mean, and believe me, we could take a whole segment on just that itself and still only scratch the surface. Sure. Right. But your original question was about democracy. 
yeah. and what we lose when people don't vote. And that's why I named those three things. No, I appreciate it. And, and here's another here's another thing that I wonder if we lose. Okay. And I'll give just a little bit of background. So when I was out registering young voters, right? Not and not focused on recently or ever incarcerated people, just young voters. And usually being the other lives. So most of them hadn't yet had a chance to make their biggest mistake, right? Their biggest mistake mm-hmm. was still to come. I would occasion, I remember there was, a, I used to give a talk at a college in Southern California. Uh-huh. I'd fly down, I would give a talk each year. And, and, and the same kid would come each year. And he would, and he would basically make the case that the smart people should vote. You say, why, why do we want the people? He wouldn't put it exactly like that, but, but his question would be essentially like, like, why would we want people who aren't? And this is, this is different from what you're focused on, but it, this, it's the background to the question I want to ask. Uh, he would say, why, why, why wouldn't we want the people who are just the most able, the most educated, the people who, who had, he didn't say the people who had property, right? He didn't say, you know, white landed males, right? But he said, he said, why wouldn't we want, why do you want to make it so that more people vote. Shouldn't we, couldn't democracy be better if maybe fewer people voted? And I don't know to some degree that was a academic exercise when he was asking those questions. And I gave an answer and I gave it my genuine belief. And what I want to do is, is test my belief with you. Uh, my genuine belief is if you give somebody uh, the idea that people will get knowledgeable about democracy and then vote, I think is one direction. But I think another thing that happens is when people vote, they get more knowledgeable, right? When people, when people start participating, they feel like part of the thing, right? When they feel invited to the party, then they, they, they act better at the party, right? They're, 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 they're part of the thing. What I want to ask is not just what's lost society, not just what's lost philosophically, but it's also lost to the human being. Right. The, yeah. the person who has said, yeah, OK, you're not part of this anymore and therefore you don't cast a ballot. And then what is gained if that person is allowed to cast a ballot? Well, so let me add this. Let me add this. I think what's lost when people are not voting or excluded from voting. I think the soul of democracy is lost. Right. And then understanding that the soul of democracy and the soul of, uh, uh, of the citizens are intertwined. And almost the same thing, right? That if our democracy suffers, we suffer as an individual. That's that's what I believe, right? And and so when we're talking, when like for instance, one of the issues that I have with uh, folks when they even go out and register people to vote is that the way how they're uh, uh, approaching uh, non-voters or people who have never registered to vote. Are, is in such a way that makes people think it's more transactional, right? And and here's the thing: I remember when Amendment Four passed in Florida, there were so many people that were like, "Oh wow, can we get the list of where all of the felons are so we could go register the felons?" Well, first of all, you're calling us a felons, which is totally disrespectful. So you're not even seeing our humanity. And then second of all, your main motivation of going to register the felons. Or, or you know, your felons, which we call returning citizens, is a fact to, uh, of it's a reaction of losing a narrow election, gubernatorial election. Say, wow, if we would have had the 1.4 million people uh, that was able to vote, right, the election would have been different. Just like Bush Gore, when Bush you know, won by 500 and, and, and something votes 
in Florida, we hear the narrative. Oh, if people with felony convictions were able to vote, it would have been a different outcome. And so your desire or what's motivating you to go and register people with felony convictions or returning citizens, right, is more partisanly. And it shows up in your conversations with people, right? And so you're trying to get people to register as Republicans or you're trying to get people to register as a Democrat. What that person is feeling is that the only reason you're trying to get me involved in your partisan gamesmanship, that you're not really concerned about me as a person, right? You're not concerned about my fears or what's going on in that. What you're concerned about is getting another check mark next to, oh, we registered so many Democrats or we've registered so many Republicans. The real conversation that you need to be having is talking to people and trying to get them to understand that democracy needs them. Whether they vote Democrat or Republican, right, is secondary or even somewhere further down the line. What's most important is that they participate in our democracy because the, when participation diminishes, then we that democracy thing that we talk about erodes even further. And it's no longer a democracy because when we think about it in its purest forms, it's like we said, we have power, we acquiesce that power, and we choose people to help run this collective thing that we call society, right? If we're not participating in it, the people that are now in power are now being demigods, and that takes, we turn into a dictatorship or some other form of uh, a tyrannical government, right? It's no longer by the people, for the people. Think about it. By the people, for the people, basically says that we need the people for it to exist. You need democracy. I mean, you need the people to vote and participate in elections for democracy to exist. And if the people are taken away from it, that, that destroys the equation. It's no longer by the people, for the people. For the people you work with, and again, I, and I really appreciate what you had to say about if we say, if our motivation is who wins elections, that will show up in how we talk about it. And if we talk about it that way, that will show up in how it's heard by, by people. So I hear that loud and clear. For the people you work with, how much does it impact them when they can or can't vote, right? Because not everybody cares all that much and is clamoring to vote, right? You know, like some people are, some people aren't. Right. How much does it matter? And how does that, and to the extent it matters, how does that show up for them? I mean, it shows up in so many ways. You know, um, one of the things, let, let, me, let me just share this story. Um, because I remember we were, uh, after Amendment 4 passed, we were actually registering people to vote. Um, but what happened was the Florida legislature enacted a law that required that people who was supposed to benefit from Amendment 4 first had to pay their outstanding legal financial obligations or their fines and fees before they're actually able to vote. And so as we're engaging, ran across this lady, she may have had a, a, a small amount of outstanding fines and fees, but she was too poor to pay it, right? And no American citizen should be forced to choose between putting food on their table and participating in democracy, right? That shouldn't occur. And so we, 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 we end up raising money and I think she was one of the ones that benefited until we go back and say, okay, your fines and fees are paid. Would you like to register to vote? And she's in her home actually filling out a voter registration form. And Jefferson, she started crying, right? And our organizer that was there with her started crying along with her. Like, why are you crying? And, and this woman looked up and said, listen, for over 24 years, I've been trying to register to vote. 
right? But because of my felony conviction, because of my drug addiction, I started to believe I'd never be able to vote again, right? And as she was signing it, and she finished like signing her name on the, on the voter registration form, Jefferson, when she got through signing, she looked up to our organizer and asked her, said, would you please pray that God would allow me to live long enough to cast a ballot? See, what we didn't know before then was that she had just came from her doctor a few weeks ago and her doctor gave her six months to live. And when I heard that, my heart just jumped because here's, we have this woman that the doctor told her she had less than six months to live and her dying wish was not to meet a celebrity. Her dying wish was not to visit an exotic location or be on Democracy Nerd, right? Her dying well, That's a wish. lot of people's dying wish, to be clear. <laughs> Line it up. No, but Jefferson, her dying wish was to be able to just vote again, to be able to feel what it felt like to be an American citizen and be a part of something bigger than us as individuals. And... You know, I remember being excited and I'm telling people about it. A reporter asked me to set up an interview when I reached out to her. Come to find out two weeks after she filled out that voter registration form, she died. And that ripped my heart. That ripped my heart in pieces, you know. And, and every now and then when I think about it, sometimes I just cry about it because, man, this woman, all she wanted for the remainder of her life was to get the experience, being able to go into a voting booth, and casting the ballot. You know, I can't put I can't put a value on that. I can't put numbers to that. That this thing is go beyond this. It's like the, the American Express commercial. It's priceless, right? To think about, man, I am a part of something. And when I think it's not to think about it, each and everyone, it's just a natural human instinct to want to be a part of the collective, want to be a part of something big. Unfortunately, the one time of the year when people like me are made to feel less than more than any other time of the year is during elections. When people are brutally reminded that you're not a part of this, you're not a part of society, you don't get a, a, a say in what's going on, right? And so it there is that impact, man. And it goes beyond, you know, who wins the race. It goes beyond whether a person registered as a Democrat or Republican. I mean, and it speaks more to the essence. When I voted for the first, I mean, in my very first presidential election, I'm over 50 years old. Let me tell you, my experiences of going into the voting booth showed me that voting was less political. Even though voting seemed to be political in nature, voting is transcends the partisan politics, right? And it's less political voting is more of an affirmation of my existence. I realized when I was there in that voting booth by myself, right? That what I was doing, I wasn't doing it as a Democrat. I wasn't doing it as a Republican. I wasn't doing it as a black person or white person. I was doing it as a human being. And it was, this thing transcended uh, the partisan politics. It transcended even the racial biases Right. And it took me to a place that said two simple words, but powerful. It said, I am right. It was a validation of my existence as a human being and my place in this thing called society. Right. That I am a part of this. Right. And I have a say. Let's get back to that heart. Let's get back to your heart. Let's get back to you. 
was at the outset, I said, well, how'd you get into this? She said, well, this is, I was preparing for this my whole life, which I, I love that answer. And there was still must have been moments where that was more or less true, right? There have been moments when you made a decision to say, I'm going to spend more of my time actually registering returning citizens or advocating for policy or working in a particular state, working in Florida to make sure that hundreds of thousands of people are given the ability or more than a million people are given the ability to be a part of democracy, be re-enfranchised. Any moments that occur to you that help you say, yep, yeah, I'm going to start working on this. You know, one of, one of, and I write about it in my book, uh, Let My People Vote. And I talk about how in 2011, it was a new administration coming into office in, in Florida um, uh, that was led by then Governor Rick Scott. And I remember prior to uh, Rick Scott coming into office, of course, there was a campaign that was going on in 2010. And at no point during the campaign were there any discussions about felon disenfranchisement, right? And at and, and, and no point in the campaign were there any debate about civil rights restoration. However, the very first act that the governor and his cabinet did, and the cabinet is the chief financial officer, the attorney general, and the secretary of agriculture, along with the governor that made up the cabinet, um, the first official action that they did was to roll back the previous administration's policy. Now, the previous administration uh, was led by governor, at the time, Governor Charlie Chris, um, who uh, had a policy that basically said for people with less serious offenses, the restoration of their civil rights to include voting rights was automatic, right? And during those four years, over 155,000 people were able to have their civil rights to include voting rights restored, right? And so the very first thing that Rick Scott did was roll back those policies and made it even more difficult for people to have their civil rights restored. And just to give an example, in four years of, of Charlie Chris, uh, over 155,000 people had their rights restored. The previous administration was Jeb Bush, uh, over 75,000 had their uh, civil rights restored in a period of four years. Under Rick Scott, when he enacted these policies in the eight years, eight years he was in office, less than 5,000 people were able to have their civil rights restored. Now, let me tell you a common denominator there. All three governors at the time were all Republican, right? But you see, there was a, a huge difference in, 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 in Governor Rick Scott administration. So when that happened in, in 2011, that blew me away, right? Because we were just celebrating the fact that people were able to get their civil rights restored automatically. And then what I seen was with a stroke of a pen on a piece of paper that all of that was undone. And it dawned on me, I'm like, wait a minute, you mean to tell me that four politicians in the state of Florida actually have the power to decide which American citizen get the vote and which American citizen don't get the vote? And I was blown away and I said, well, that is way too much power for any politician to have, whether they're Democrat, Republican or whatever. No politician should have that much power to decide who get the vote and who don't get the vote, right? Because if they do, then that leaves room for partisan politics to play now, a if you're role doing 50, in something that's beyond it. 
Yeah, if you're doing 50,000, 75,000, 125,000. I don't care if you're doing 200,000 at a time or 500,000 at a time. At the heart of what I'm saying is that no politician should have that much power to determine who gets the vote. They should not get the pick and choose their voters. They just shouldn't. Desmond, last year year you were, uh, you, you were, named a MacArthur fellow, you're given a MacArthur genius grant. Did you consider yourself a genius before last year or just since last year? You know, I, <laughs> that, that's, that's, <laughs> that's a tough question. You know, maybe some people. You always thought yourself a genius, know. but you didn't want to say it out loud. No. You were glad <laughs> that somebody else said it first. Yeah. Right. <laughs> but no, you know, um, you know, I think at the end of the day, my, if there's any genius in me, uh, it's, uh, the genius of love, right? Because of my my history, because of me being in the depths of hell, homeless, uh, unemployed, thinking about killing myself, uh, addicted to drugs, all right? Just being in the depths of hell and, and emerging from that and that experience have really given me a great appreciation for humanity, right? And, 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 and my desire you know, I, you know, folks like to say I fight for returning citizens. You know, you talked about me fighting so that returning citizens are able to vote. But I, I like to think of myself as fighting for something greater than that. I'm fighting for all of us. Jefferson, I'm fighting for you, right? And so many other folks like you, you know, and, and because at the end of the day, like I said, if I'm able to do something that makes everybody's life better, then that's, that, that's a worthy something to be engaged in. And so I believe that the best way to help you, Jefferson, the best way to help our country is to advocate for the segment of our population that has been most weakened by these various systems. Because I want the entire chain to be stronger. I've been fighting for the entire chain for quite some time, right? And so it's, it, it, and it's not just about voting, man. No, it's about creating a better society for everyone. Let's talk about Amendment 4 and, and your involvement in it, right? You're instrumental in your organization, FRC, instrumental in Amendment 4 in Florida, step towards achieving full access to democracy for returning citizens. At what point did you see the opportunity or did, or did, or did other sort of fellow strategists see the opportunity that you thought you'd be able to go to the ballot and get a supermajority of Floridians, <laughs> right? You know, a state that voted for Donald Trump, okay? Uh, a supermajority, not 51%, but more than that, of Floridians to be in favor of that initiative. When did you see that opportunity? Well, I've seen that opportunity materialize really after Rick Scott got in the office. And like I said, when I seen that um, the four politicians had the power to determine who get the vote and who don't get the vote, I knew that that was too much power for any politician and that we needed to take some of that power out of their hands. And, you know, I think the second greatest form of a display of democracy, uh, first being actually voting, the second greatest form of a democracy is when people take back their power. And we do that through citizens initiative, right? We've got to remember the power originated with us individually. And if we acquiesce that power and we select someone to do our bidding and they're not doing our bidding, then what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to take matters in our own hands. And that's what we did with the, the, the ballot initiative. Now, it didn't matter to me who won the state of Florida, uh, whether it was Donald Trump. I mean, we've seen Florida go back and forth, like the pendulum. 
what mattered most to me because see, here's the thing. I knew that traveling the state of Florida, I realized that, man, wait a minute, man. It's not just black people that can't vote, right? As a matter of fact, there are almost three times as many white people who could, they, there were more people who looked like you, Jefferson, who could not vote in the state of Florida. Than I apologize like to all those people. I'm not as good right? as I wish. You know, <laughs> and, and then, you know, I, I, I travel around the state and what I seen was, you know, and I tell people this, when I was arrested, the police didn't ask me if I was Democrat or Republican. When I appeared before a judge, the, police, the judge didn't ask me if I was Democrat or Republican. You know, and, and to even assume that, oh, um, everybody who would have got their rights back to vote was, was going to be voted Democrat, because a lot of people assume that the majority of people that were fighting to get their rights back to vote was African-American, was basically, uh, 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 it was... So erroneous. I mean, the, the thinking was warped to begin with, because if you anybody who was thinking that was basically saying only black people or only Democrats get in trouble. <laughs> only blacks. So only that was Democrats one challenge you had to right face, right? This idea that that where you're trying to say no, this is about humanity, this is about democracy, yes. this is about who's this is able all to American. And people are trying to say, no, this is about who's going to be the next governor, who's going to be where, where you know Flores electoral votes are going to go. So you had that challenge. Mm -hmm. And maybe that was the biggest challenge, or maybe there was another. Maybe in addition to that, what was or what were the biggest challenges about passing Amendment 4? What was the hardest part? I think the hardest part was trying to convince the people that was on your side that there was a different way of doing things. You know, and I think that was the hardest part because... Like who? Like who, you know, who's on your side that you had a hard time convincing? You know, I mean, well, let's, let's talk about um, like progressives. You know, it, it, was, it was very hard. I, I think the other challenge, right, was, was the fact that you know, when you're talking about major campaigns, uh, or major endeavors, you know, at the helm of that are people more than likely someone that's going to look like you, Jefferson. You know, it's going to be a white man, you know, and then maybe down, maybe the next rung may be a white female. Right. But, you know, to as an African-American person, a male, as a person who has a felony conviction, directly impacted, you don't see us leading things, right? No, because we don't, there's a natural assumption that we don't have the ability to be strategic enough to lead a major movement, right? We could be the spokesperson, we could be a figurehead, we could be the face of, right? We could be one of the stories that are used, right? But we're not the ones calling the shots, right? And so there was, I mean, at the end of the day. So is this were, consultants, was elected officials, or is it foundation heads, I mean, it donors? I Who think, are the folks who sort of had their just hands on general. the reins? I want their names. Uh, and I, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> no <laughs> Who had their this, reins no, on power is, that you had to get some reins well, from? Just, I mean, you see it all over this country. Let me tell you something, Jefferson. Oh, if no, I see it all over the country, but I want I want even but more let me tell you, details. Like you, some texture. you go, well, let me give you some names. You want some names? Let me tell you something. <laughs> in the last eight years, the biggest gains in democracy where, where more and more people were allowed to be able to participate in democracy, right, were won through the efforts that was led by people just like me. You want names? Let me give you Norris Henderson in, in Louisiana. Let me give you Dara Atkinson in North Carolina. Let me give you Dorsey Nunn, Susan Burton, Taina Vargas in California, the way now people on probation are able to vote, right? These are the biggest wins that this country has seen over the last like eight years as far as expanding democracy, and it was all led by people who were directly impacted, right? So that's one Returning lesson. Citizens. So that's one, 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 one lesson from this that I'm hearing you say is, is following 
uh, and empowering impacted people to lead yeah. pro-democracy movements. We're the ones that's closest to the pain. Uh, other no, lessons for people who are kind of who are, who care about this stuff, and they don't just watch it like it's sports, but they they like to break it down and kind of understand when they are strategic, right? You know, they, they do care about that strategy. In addition to that lesson, what are other lessons from the Florida? Re-examine who your enemy is, right? Because right? Right? there was a, just a natural assumption that this is going to be a fight, Democrats versus Republicans, white versus black or whatever, right? And people were just totally shocked, right? That we were able to engage in this campaign that threatened to shift the political landscape of Florida drastically. Because we're talking about re-enfranchising 1.4 million returning citizens in the state where we've seen presidential elections decided by uh, 500 27 votes. We've seen an uh, 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 average uh, presidential election uh, uh, victory gap of around 100,000 votes. Uh, President Barack Obama won by 76,000, I believe, the first time he ran. All right. And so to re-enfranchise 1.4 million, that, that is a huge threat to shift the political landscape of Florida. Right. You, and, and, and so you talk about in spite of that, Right, in spite of the fact that we were dealing with a controversial topic as people with felony convictions being able to vote, right, that we ran this campaign and won, right, we we won with a super majority of the votes, right, and we did it with no opposition. Let me say that again: not one iota of opposition against this amendment, right, that threatened to shift the political landscape. Why don't you think right. there was that opposition? Do you think it was because well, they were too slow? Because they did resist. No, they're definitely not too slow. A a no, after no. the, so, yeah, so what, what, what was it? No. It was it just goodbye and everybody loved it? And, or was and, and it? This is the whole, this is the whole thing that is, a lot of times we create our, we create our own enemies, right? And, 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 and how we come out the gate already, we, we, we create these divisions and we draw these lines and, and, and we take on these labels in such a way that it limits who can talk to us and who we can talk to, right? And our campaign did it different. So you're we saying, that, so the thing that you said the very early part of our conversation is that if we view voting rights through a partisan eye first, that will come through, that, that you try to, that you try oh, to have yes. that ethic, that you haven't yes. had that ethic helped. Yes, I mean, think about it. People, I mean, people were like stunned when I kept pushing back against them. They were like, well, guess what? This is a good bipartisan campaign. I'm like, hell no, this is not a bipartisan campaign. And they were like, oh, I'm sorry. We meant nonpartisan campaign. I'm like, we're not that either, buddy. We're not. What we are is an organic grassroots movement that welcomed and enjoyed bipartisan support. And the difference is we didn't lead with the politics, we led with the people, right? And a lot of times you see uh, uh, campaigns coming out the gate. Yeah, this is the Democrat. This is the progressive. This is this. This is that. Right. And like, like, listen, half of the United States don't know what the hell progressive is. <laughs> you know, what I'm saying? if you would ask 10 people in a row to, de to define what the progressive is, you're going to get 10 different answers. Right. And so, no, man, this is about a grassroots effort, man, that's talking about something that that deals more with human rights than anything else right the right to vote is not a, a, a democrat or a republican issue it's a human issue because at the end of the day we got to go back to the very beginning that we were human beings 
And we figured out at some point that it's probably in our best interest that we live together. Right? And so we came together and decided, okay, well, we got to give up some of our power in order for us to do so. But at the heart of that was not about whether or not a Bernie was a Democrat or Republican. It was about us as human beings wanting to coexist peacefully, wanting to create protections for us collectively, right? And so that is, I think that one of the reasons we were successful was the fact that we were able to come out that way. We were able to say, man, listen, this is not about the left or the right. Man, this is about what's right, right? And what's right is that, like like our, our banking laws or other laws that we have is that, man, when the debt is paid, it's paid. What's right is the fact that if somebody served their time, right, repaid their debt to society, they should be given the opportunity to fully participate in it. We didn't lead with the politics, we led with the people. You said we're not a bipartisan campaign, we're not a nonpartisan campaign. You said we're an organic grassroots movement that welcomes support. Did you say across partisan boundaries? Or Welcome you- and enjoyed it. Welcome and enjoyed bipartisan support. Brilliant line. So there's a, there's a guy I know who's a uh, an opinion uh, measuring consultant, right? Not a pollster, but he does focus groups and other stuff. And he said, the, and now I understand why you got the MacArthur grant. Now I understand part of why you got the MacArthur grant. He said the best way to develop a political message, and he didn't mean merely, I don't think he merely meant so that someone could win an election, right? But he used the word political. The best way to develop a political message and this is, by the way, a guy who's a who's a focus group guy, right? Who, who it would be in his economic interest to say is someone like me. And by that, I don't just mean an older white guy. I mean, someone like me who's like paid to do this work. He said the best way to develop a political message is to listen to a gifted candidate type, is, is, is to have a gifted candidate type test their message with real human beings and then keep the best stuff. And and I don't mean it as an accusation to call you a candidate type, but I th- he included you, not because you're I think, trying to run for something. And, and if you did, I'm not arguing against that either. But that, but I'm seeing you, you know, when you really get going, you just spit this stuff, right? <laughs> it's just not, not, it's not left or right, but what's right? So no, it's brilliant stuff. I love it. I want to, how'd you raise the money or how was the money raised? Because some of that, right? I, and, and I will say, you don't have to convince me. You don't have to do very much to convince me that people that many people off to the side would think that your allies might've been your biggest obstacles. Like I know like same, like all the time, man, all the time, all the democracy work I've seen, that is, that is a surprising reality, right? It's a surprising reality. And it's no longer surprising to me. It is, it, it is still a reality that I have that has emotional weight with me. I'll also cite the state of California. When you ask who are the folks that blocked uh, automatic, excuse me, excuse me, same day voter registration in the state of California, it was the political consultants. And that was not a political consultants who were uh, based on their partisan desire of who would win, but based on because it would just change the landscape and make it harder for them to predict and control who was going to win, right? It would impact, they, they, they had all their models figured out, they knew how to run their polls, they knew how to do their mail and do their TV. And it, all of a sudden you're saying there might be another 1.4 million people added to the yeah. added to the roles that we haven't yeah. already sent our mail pieces to, that we haven't already polled. <laughs> what, what, we can't do that. And they helped, and, and they were, I have it on multiple good sources, they were the most important reason that it died. So you don't have to convince me that I find it brilliant. Any, any, and at the same time, there's all kinds of gatekeepers in this stuff, right? And maybe you can get around it or go a different way. You can build an organic grassroots campaign that welcomes yep. and enjoys bipartisan support. And you don't have to only go through sort of the, the some old pathways. You can create your, yep. your 
your own pathways. How did you do you it? You said something. Please. You said something that I have to, I have to um, comment on. Please. I think that there are a lot of consultants out there that depend on the conflict. Yeah. Right. They depend on the conflict. And so at the heart of they're not, it's not in their best interest to have that conflict at any. As long as it's right against left and them against Republicans and this person against that person, right? There's a ton of work there, right? But when we're able to, if, could you imagine if there was no conflict on, 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 on some of these issues, right? And, and here's the thing. We politicize, we even politicize whether or not people should have safe drinking water, right? Just think about it. And there are consultants, tons of consultants that get paid an insane amount of money, right? To advise both sides on it, right? And they're just like a lawyer. Like, you know, when, when I went to law school, one of the things I learned is that you have to be able to defend both sides. And so that means that sometimes I make my money as an insurance agent, I mean, defending insurance companies, and then sometimes I make my money at, uh, defending people against insurance companies, you know? But I, I, know, I know both sides and I can argue both sides. And I think you have a lot of consultants that really rely on the conflict and, and their bottom line is not resolving the issue, right? Their bottom line is really to get paid. When you, and that's what, another reason why it's important that people close to the pain need to be a part of the solution because when you're suffering the, from the pain itself, right, your driving force is to end the pain, right? <laughs> Not to continue to gain profit, but to end the pain, right? You want this thing resolved. I don't mean to pander, but I just want to say to the listener that if you can do, I, I introduced Jesse Jackson when I was in high school, right? I threw my president of my high school, Jesse Jackson came to visit because I went to the, you know, there's only three three high schools in my state that had big enough black population to that Jesse Jackson would want to visit. I went to one of those three, right. And he came and he, and he spoke and, and I, and he, he did something at my school that I'd never seen anybody do, which was hold the attention of the entire school. Right. Which included my idiot friend and, you know, my, my, my Yahoo friends and other people just that, 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 that reduced teachers to tears. Okay. And he, he held the entire, entire student body. Right white, black, and indifferent in rapt attention. And I asked one of his entourage, I said, well, what, what is he, uh, what's his, how does he do that? And he says, well, you understand, Jesse has material. <laughs> he has things that he comes up with. And you know, there's some stuff that he did just for Grant High School. There's other stuff he knows is always going to work, right? Up with hope, down with dope. I am somebody. If I can believe it, I can achieve it, right? And he has that stuff and he knows that stuff is going to work and he collects those things and he tries stuff out. And then when it works, he keeps that stuff. And I realize it's the same, it's the same thing that Jerry Seinfeld did as a comic, right? Mm -hmm. And to the listener of this program, there have been probably a dozen things. There's some other stuff, just you know, whatever, but there's been probably a dozen things, at least five or six, that I think are golden lines that that you should get, you should re-listen to, you should write down, and you should use, right? Didn't leave with the politics, love with the people, right? The a lot of consultants depend on the conflict, not left or right, but what's right. There's golden stuff. So I don't mean to pander by that, but I do <laughs> want the listener, maybe I do mean to pander, but I also want the listener. To, to capture some of that stuff because there's some there's some gold mm -hmm. on a stick right here. I want to go back to a minute for what happened in the aftermath in our in our last in our last minutes. So you get this thing passed and it and it mm -hmm. what I loved about it and I like what you liked about it better. I like how you talk about it better maybe because you're closer to the pain. But I the way I liked and and the way I talked about it then was you were able to put democracy on the ballot. My belief is if you mm -hmm. put democracy on the ballot not just mm -hmm. Democrats, not just Republicans, but democracy on the ballot, the democracy will win. Mm -hmm. It won't, it won't mm -hmm. get unanimous, 
But if you uh -huh. democracy on the ballot itself, democracy will win. And I really appreciate uh -huh. that. And it sweeps the nation, right? It's, mm -hmm. it's like this huge thing. That it, and then right after, the legislature mm -hmm. goes in and they say, okay, mm -hmm. but you got to pay your fines. Yeah. We, and we learned in Ferguson, we, we understood how they were funding their city and mm -hmm. how many people were perpetually in trouble because they couldn't afford a series of fines mm -hmm. and get more fines and they get interest on mm -hmm. that. And they weren't ever going to pay it. And so that mm -hmm. didn't seem like, oh, yeah, just pay your little debt. No, literally, you can't pay that debt. And if you have a federal mm -hmm. minimum wage of seven dollars, you're never going to pay it anyway. What in the aftermath? What did you in addition to the adulation and the, and, the, and, the, and the joy of success and the relief of people that now had some of their humanity, some of their participation restored? Mm -hmm. What were some of the challenges you faced immediately? Walk us through some of that. <laughs> to try to stop folks from reverting back to the old ways of doing things. You know, you talk about putting democracy on the ballot. The other piece to that was that we we powered that through love, right? Uh, over 5.1 million people voted yes on Amendment 4. And, you know, when I look at those 5.1 million votes, I tell folks all the time, I didn't see votes that was based on hate or fear, but rather I seen votes that was based on love, forgiveness and redemption. And we showed the world that love can in fact win the day that we can move major policy issues without having to further divide our country, without having to stoke fear in each other, without having to stoke hatred in each other, that we could actually achieve something great through love, right? And, 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 and so we showed that it was on full display, right? And then right after we passed it, the legislature go back, you know, and it was some back and forth, I'll be real, between legislature, between other organizations, you know, accusations flying left and right. And the next thing you know, it turned into some partisan back and forth. And these, you know, we, we had an amendment that over, matter of fact, I tell you, a recent research showed us that 40% of the people who voted for Governor DeSantis voted for Amendment 4, and over 44% or 45% of the people who voted for Rick Scott voted for Amendment 4. I know we had over a million people who were Republican that voted for Amendment 4, that we elevated this thing above partisan lines. But then when it came for the implementation of it, when it came to the, the uh, LFO requirements, it was strictly along partisan lines strictly along partisan lines at, at, at the higher levels. The Democrats right? would support and, the, what happened with Amendment 4 and Republicans would block it, even though you had and, and Republicans that, who were blocked, and, who supported and, you. Yeah, and there was inflammatory language on both sides. I'm gonna tell you, yeah. Jefferson, it really was, right? And it, it really made me just sick to my stomach because, man, we just got through demonstrating that we don't have to go this route. That we could actually, you know, if we take the politics out of it and place the people's needs above everything else, then man, we could actually accomplish something for our people that we're supposed to be serving. See, the whole thing is we've gotten to this point where these elected officials are their first allegiance to a party, and that's bullshit. It's not a party that elects them, it's people that elect them. And their first priority should be to the people, not to the party, right? And I think that that's one of the main distinctions between a politician and a public servant. Because a public servant at some point would hear the cries of the people and that would trump whatever his party wants, right? But the thing that gets me, right? Because let me tell you something, right? You're driving down your major highway, Jefferson. And as you're driving, you, come up, you see an accident ahead and there's someone laying on the ground, right? And you decide that you're gonna stop. You pull over, you get out your car, you run up to the person that's laying on the ground. Jefferson, I can promise you your first question is not going to be, did you vote for Donald Trump? 
right? Your first question that person is not going to be how much money you make, right? What's your sexual identity? What's your immigration status? I promise you, it's not going to be any of that. Your first questions are going to be along the lines of, are you okay? How can I help? Right? It's in those moments that we're great as a country. It's in those moments that humanity is so beautiful that we're able to see beyond these labels and see the humanity in each other, right? And the, 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 the thing is, is that a lot of times we only see that after natural disasters or accidents. We've seen that in Surfside, in the collapse of the condos on, uh, in South Florida, right? Those firefighters and, and volunteers digging through that rubble. They didn't care about whether or not a person was left or right or, or Republican or Democrat or whatever. What they cared about was they were digging through that rubble as if their own family member was there, right? And I'm telling you that that, that connection is in us, but we have allowed talking heads, we've allowed puppet masters to create all of these divisions and these different categories and these distinctions to separate ourselves from each other, to separate us, our humanity, right? The connection along the lines of humanity. And I'm telling you, Jefferson, that we don't have to wait for that. I think that we can see that more often than not, right? I believe we can get there, but as long as we're allowing politicians to dictate how we feel and how we should treat our neighbor, right? We won't get there. We won't get there. Because let me tell you, there are times when you, if you sit and you talk to your neighbor, your neighbor's a Republican, you have a beautiful relationship with that person. But if you listen to these politicians, you're supposed to be fearful of that person, but they're Republican, they're racist and all. And that's BS, because you find racism on both sides, right? We, we, we have to, I mean, we, at some point, we have to stop the madness at some point, we have to take a step back and really connect ourselves with each other. And that's what our campaign did, Crane. We were able to connect with people along the lines of humanity, right? It occurs and that me. held strong throughout the entire campaign. It, it occurs to me that because Amendment 4 hadn't yet passed, you may not have, and I think in your book, you say you were not able to, you, you, you were not allowed to vote for Amendment 4. What was that, yeah. what was that night like? Right. So there's all these people, you're hoping all these other people. And it's it you, you brought up women's suffrage. It's a little like women's suffrage, right? The the suffragettes were not did not have the ability to vote for their own enfranchisement. Yeah. What's yeah. that like for you? Right. What was that? What was that pain or oh, that joy? That was joy, right? Because think about it. That's why I, one of our things is that love won the day. When the people, the voters went to vote for Amendment 4, you know who they had in the mind? They didn't have Democratic Party or Republican Party in their mind. You know who they had? They had someone who they loved, whether it was a family member or a close friend who made a mistake, who they felt deserved a second chance. That's who they had. People went to the polls for love. They voted based on love, right? And let me tell you, that night when we see love win the day, let me tell you, I had this one gentleman, um, very elderly guy. I remember in 2016, uh, we were doing GOTV efforts. I he was on the roster, uh, and they said he could vote. And I he, he he had to drive his car, but I walked alongside his car to take him to the uh, polling location. He stayed in there for about an hour. He came out, and told him that he could, told me that he couldn't vote. Right, and let me tell you, uh, I was like, wait a minute, why not? And and I, I put, pulled out my laptop and I looked and come to find out eight years prior, 
he had a conviction for driving with a suspended license, right? And that voting location was directly across the street from a graveyard. And this man reminded me of my father. And I remember breaking out crying because I'm like, this man is going to die before he gets the vote. And it bothered me. It really bothered me. But that night, somebody invited him to our watch party. And he was there. And I remember when a member four passed that he was hugging me, clinging to my, to my neck. And he was crying. I was crying. And all he was saying is, I can vote now. I can vote now. And that moment, you know, just to know that, man, I got to play a role in somebody being able to vote before they die. I remember that night so vividly, and that's all he could say, this old man that reminded me of my dad, you know, and that was made possible because people, when they went to the poll, they weren't driven by hatred, they wasn't driven by fear, they were driven by love. Beautiful things happened. Even we, we see it, we see it playing out in COVID. The beautiful moments of COVID was when politicians were not involved in this shit. And but people came together, neighbors came together and looked out for each other. That's those beautiful moments. Not when we're trying to figure out who's them and who's Republican and this and that, racist, and this, all this kind of stuff going on that just just divides us though. It's those moments. We was able to have that beautiful moment, man, because our campaign was driven by love. If it was driven by anything else, we probably would not have had that moment. We probably wouldn't be where we are today, and nobody would have known I was a genius. <laughs> you would have known. You would have, you would have known. Desmond Mead, president of the Florida Rights Restoration Committee. Thank you, man. Thank you for coming for love. Thank you for being a part of this conversation. Thank you for being a democracy nerd, my friend. I so appreciate Listen. your time. To tell your folks to get that book. Let my people vote, man. The story is there, it's and that is the book. I, I I I did it. I did it again because I didn't do it at the intro. Let's let's dwell on it a little bit. Uh, the book is "Let My People Vote." It is out yes. now in every store on every website, uh, and and anything else you want to say to plug the book. No, it's it's even on audiobook, you know, and it's in my voice. There's no strangers going to be talking to you. If you want to hear me up close and personal. You wouldn't let you somebody else read your well. book. I already know. <laughs> like, somebody said, well, we have a, come on, man. Yeah. <laughs> Desmond Mead, thank you so much, man. And listen, it's great to be on the show. Thank you, Jefferson. Democracy Nerds recorded in sunny Portland, Oregon, produced by Kyle Curtis. Thanks also to technical producer Sig Seeliger. Logo designed by Kat Buckley at kbuckleygraphics.com. I am Jefferson Smith. Thank you so much for listening. You can rate and review. Hope you will. And follow Democracy Nerd on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Past episodes of the show, Democracy Nerd, can be found online at democracynerd.us. Go America. Thank you. Thank you, Democracy Nerd.